Major support for Out to Lunch is provided by the law firm of Jones Walker, established in 1937 with over 375 attorneys in offices throughout the U.S., providing a comprehensive range of services to a local, national, and international client base. JonesWalker.com and by Hancock Whitney. Hancock Whitney is here for families, here for businesses, here for communities during this challenging time. Visit HancockWhitney.com slash COVID-19 for the latest. And by Shorten Associates, legal recruiters in Louisiana and Texas. From across Louisiana, we're out to lunch with Peter Rusciutti, Stephanie Regal, and Christian Maida. Peter Rusciutti is Tulane University's Freeman School of Business Professor of Finance. Stephanie Regal is editor of the Baton Rouge Business Report. Christian Maida is publisher and editor of The Current. It's business Louisiana style. Hi, and welcome to Out to Lunch Louisiana. I'm Christian Maida in Lafayette. I'm Peter Rusciutti in New Orleans. I'm Stephanie Regal in Baton Rouge. As Louisiana reopens and we continue to navigate the fallout from the COVID-19 pandemic, Christian Peter and I are taking a weekly statewide look at what's happening in the world of business and finance. Today, we're going to be joined by Judy Terzotis, the publisher of the daily newspaper, The Advocate. The newspaper has editions in New Orleans, Baton Rouge, and Acadiana, and Lindsay Navarro. She's the executive director of El Centro, an organization that supports Louisiana's Latinx entrepreneurs. But let's start in Baton Rouge, uh, Stephanie, where I understand uh, maybe the pandemic that we've been experiencing over the last few months feels like it might be kind of ending there. Or at least that's the attitude the business community might have. What's, what's going on in Baton Rouge? Well, you know, Christian, like we were talking about a few minutes ago, I, you really get that sense that people are just willing things to be back to normal here. And so the thing that's going to be curious is, is does it work, right? I mean, are we going to see a, a huge resurgence in the middle of the summer? Or, or will things really um, go back to as close to normal as we can get? I mean, I'm not saying that people outside of the conservative members of the state legislature are not taking precautions because businesses very definitely are. But um, I mean, you're really seeing a resumption of commercial activity. I was touring a, a mixed use traditional neighborhood development last week. And I mean, construction is blowing and going there. They've been selling new houses. In the, in the moderate to upper end segment of the market, you know, homes in the six, seven, eight hundred thousand dollar range, at least one a week at the slowest part of the pandemic. So that sort of gives you an idea of where things are, you know, as, as pools reopen and camps reopen, people are out and about. And the restaurants and the bars, even though they're still under, you know, the phase two guidelines that limit the number of people they can have in there it really doesn't look like there's a whole lot of social distancing going on when you drive by and you see a bunch of people crowded on the, on the patios. They're not wearing masks, um, and they certainly are standing close together. So whatever the capacity limits are, um, you know, it, it looks very much like, like things are sort of back to normal. Stephanie, um, one of the things, Wall Street is rolling along, really doing well. And sometimes they say there's a difference between Wall Street and Main Street. Wall Street's betting on a lot of pent-up demand. Where do you think the most pent-up demand is? You know, it's interesting because I, I think Wall Street's as disconnected from reality as a lot of people in the Baton Rouge business community are. I mean, I really think there are huge socioeconomic studies to be done on this one day. But I mean, the small businesses are hurting, right? So I mean, people just like who haven't been able to get their hair cut, who haven't been out to go shopping, who haven't done things like that. I think that's where you're going to see a whole lot of 
demand. I mean, of course, there's been the whole slowdown in the industrial sector, industrial construction. That's really not going to change because that's being influenced by the by the oil prices, right? Um, real estate here really hasn't been affected here yet. And, and if things continue to recover and we don't have a huge setback in the next two months, I think real estate's going to do just fine. So, I mean, it's really in, in the retail sector, I think, where there's been so much pent up demand. Now, I mean, even though the crowds are coming back, the restaurants are going to struggle. And, and we've heard of some restaurants that are closed for good because even at a 25 or 50 percent capacity, they can't they can't make it, you know, and um, their margins were so tight to begin with that it's going to be tough. But um, yeah, people are willing this thing away. So the question is, will it will it actually um, work? Christian, in Lafayette, uh, are you seeing that same sort of um, mentality, you know, among the business community? And and how are how are the small business? How's Main Street Lafayette doing? The Main Street in Lafayette, in a lot of ways, you know, if you kind of think about the layout of a traditional city, right, is Jefferson Street in downtown Lafayette. And by all accounts, it was back over the weekend. Um, and I, you know, I long ago gave up my evening, uh, uh, my evening jaunts. But my understanding is, is the bars are, you know, kind of starting to come back, you know, downtown, if anything, is kind of known for having a pretty vibrant uh, bar scene and, and people, uh, I guess, couldn't fit you know, all inside of these bars. And so they're sort of spilling into the streets. So it's a version of downtown life that certainly existed beforehand, meaning, you know, um, I can recall, you know, mounted police and things like that trying to, to deal with crowd control before um, people weren't sort of allowed to all go inside of a building. But it's still kind of jarring to think that, you know, for a period of time, we were all watching movies and kind of cringing when people were shaking hands. And then now, you know, people are just like, crunching into Jefferson Street and bringing out ice chests to go drinking, right? And it doesn't sound like my idea of a good time, but people uh, people are doing it again, you know? One of the things I think you have to think about in, in Lafayette, Christian, is that there, there's just culturally, it's a real hugging kind of uh, uh, being together, family-oriented. Do you think that's pushing it up? Do you think that's uh, quickening the uh, way things go? They just can't take it anymore? I don't know if there's anything sort of family oriented about people going downtown. Um, I would all do apologies to the people that try to make it that way. Um, but I mean, yeah, it's a good time and kind of place. And, and I think there's got to be something to be said for folks having, you know, spent the last few months being unable to do that. And I mean, to some extent, you have to, you guys talked about sort of pent up demand. Like, yes, there's likely some pent up demand. I mean, they, we had a pretty seasonably nice spring and yet no one could go downtown or kind of get out onto the verandas and do their, you know, outdoor drinking. And so I think maybe that has something to do with it. You know, I mean, certainly the thing that I've witnessed over the past few months is just people biking everywhere. And so maybe they're just sort of tired of that and it's too hot to bike, but, you know, uh, just hot enough to drink. Right. So I think that's maybe what's going on there. You know, and it's interesting kind of speaking of biking and changes in the way people get around, you know, Peter, I understand that, uh, you know, in New Orleans, right, they're, they're thinking about shutting down the French Quarter to to car traffic, which is, you know, actually something that I think is kind of in the ether here, like the idea that maybe they should turn portions of downtown, at least temporarily into pedestrian walkways. Um, and that's a trend that we're seeing nationally. In fact, I mean, it's, it's, tell us about that. Is, is the mayor really going to get this done? I mean, it kind of makes sense at face value, right? 
Yeah, and you know, one of the things about uh, COVID-19 is we're trying to figure out what is going to be the, the lasting impacts. The one everybody talks about is that more and more of us are going to be working from home, but this is more of a, a local issue, and Mayor Cantrell has put together a task force to look at how this would be done to get the cars out of the French Quarter, and I'm sure it would be controversial. In fact, there would be some businesses that it would be a positive for, and some would be a negative. One of the things she said in, uh, in a press conference was that it would be good for restaurants in that they could now have tables outdoors. Uh, and then she also mentioned that street musicians would be uh, not run over. That would be a good thing too. And um, it's just going to be interesting to see uh, what the business community thinks of all that. And of course, what happens is when you saw the French Quarter completely empty, it just made you reimagine what that place could be uh, in a way that you would never get a chance to see it uh, like that. So, Peter, I mean, New Orleans is sort of a famously European city, right? I mean, it's maybe perhaps the most European city in the United States, you know, San Francisco being the other, I suppose. But, you know, you go overseas and that's pretty common in central cities to like to break the, the whole thing down to, to no cars. So maybe this just makes sense. I mean, why didn't they do this before? <laughs> yeah. You know, I looked it up and there were a few times they've tried this before. Uh, uh, Mayor Mitch Landrew tried it only with kind of little barricades that you see there every once in a while. But uh, it is a very, very good question. It is so uh, much a pedestrian area. I know at uh, Tulane's campus, for instance, we'd had the main street was driving for forever and they uh, they took it out and it's a pedestrian walkway and it's a hundred times better. So I think when people get the chance to see it like that, I, I really do think there would be no turning back. It's going to definitely be interesting to see how it all shakes out. You're listening to Out to Lunch Louisiana with Peter Raschuti in New Orleans, Christian Mater in Lafayette, and I'm Stephanie Regal in Baton Rouge. Whatever else has happened to you over the past few months, you've more than likely been keeping up with everything that's going on by checking the news. Along with NPR, some of Louisiana's most reliable news sources are the local newspaper, Baton Rouge and Acadiana editions of The Advocate, both in print and online. And in New Orleans, of course, there's NOLA Times-Picayune. The publisher of all the editions is Judy Terzotis. Judy, it's good to see you again. Welcome back to Out to Lunch. Thank you so much. And of course, the last time we spoke on this show back in February, which now seems like a lifetime ago, you were talking about how The Advocate was bucking national newspaper trends in the face of shrinking circulations and streamlined newsrooms and other places. The Advocate was actually hiring. It was growing. It had recently acquired the Times-Picayune. It was seeing new revenue streams. And then COVID hit. And now when you go to The Advocate's website, there's an advertisement that says, our COVID-19 news team needs your help. And there's actually a donate button. I mean, sometimes I feel like I'm listening to public radio when I'm on your site. It's been reported that y'all have had to lay off people and some have had to take pay cuts. Was it about the, what was it about the pandemic that, that really turned The Advocate from an outlier media success story into a newspaper that's having a tough time? Yeah, and I still contend we're an outlier. Um, we did what smart business people do is we hunkered down. I will tell you there were days in March where my chief revenue officer came into my office and said, we had $400,000 canceled today. The next day he would come in and say, we had $600,000 canceled today. And I'm not exaggerating. Of course, from these are primarily that kind of money is your large national chains who really had to reinvent themselves and how that they're going to market to their, their best customers. So we did what all businesses do. We looked inward and said, okay, we got to protect our readership. We got to make sure we have robust products. 
And, you know, we've got to be able to serve our business community. So what can we do differently? We didn't lay people off. We actually put a group of folks on unpaid leave and intend to bring them back. We pay, had the whole time have been paying their all 100% of their health insurance and they could apply for unemployment. Then we took the rest of the staff and put a furlough in place. So not a pay cut. I mean, yes, it's less money, but they're getting time in return. So we did, we launched initially in March of one day a week. So basically a 20% pay cut. And um, with that though, I've been able to put back hours as businesses return. Yet you mentioned, you know, we we did we launched a donation campaign as much most media companies have done across the country, for profit, nonprofit have put into place. We partner with local media association who has a nonprofit arm, a foundation. All of the donations go 100 percent to hours in the newsroom to cover COVID-19. So very, you know, we obviously working with our, our accountants, external, internal, to make sure that we have the reporting. Well, a lot of things, you know, as you know, when you take, you take donations, you take grants, they're very buttoned up. And so very, very careful about that. So now we're at a place that our journalists are only taking one furlough day a month. So that shows you what has happened since March, where it was one day a week. Now it's only one day for the entire month, and I hope to be able to dissolve that in the next month. And so we've been putting back hours, um, but yes, you know we can't just hunker down. So we are also looking forward, and so you'll see now that we have job postings for, for critical positions that we intend to hire. So it is going to be a return. Thank goodness we got out of the gate very very strong in Q1. That is really helping us weather the storm. But I think we're all learning how do we you know how do we interact with our readers differently? How do we help advertisers gain traction in terms of getting a strong ROI? So it's a, it's an interesting challenge that I keep thinking to myself this is going to end there's a silver lining out of this because how we interact is going to be very different and that's a positive um, for sure so yeah we're, we're learning with the rest of the world about how to reinvent ourselves and and one of the things one of the criticisms that you heard when when you all were soliciting donations was that they are privately owned and they're owned by one of the well-known wealthiest businessmen in the state, right? And he lives on a private gated street in, in uptown New Orleans. And so how did you all, um, how did you all, you know, respond to that when you did hear that criticism? Yeah, I mean, we're a business, you know, and that we're one of John's businesses that have also his other businesses have been severely impacted. So you run a business like you, a good, strong business should be run, regardless if you're owned by a national chain with, you know, deep, deep pockets, as I used to work for Gannett, you know, and, you know, we, you run, uh, you, you just run for the best of the business and making sure that you're making those decisions, regardless of who your owner is. So in a lot of ways, you know, Judy, I you kind of, what you guys seem to have experienced happened to a lot of news organizations across the country, sort of this coronavirus bump, right? Where all of a sudden everybody's interested in the news and yet it doesn't turn into revenue, right? So it raises this kind of interesting question about, you know, from my perspective, right, is that I run a nonprofit media organization. Like, yeah, this is an extreme event, but does it not underscore um, a severe problem in the way for-profit news organizations are even run? Like the idea that when, if, if what we're selling is the information that people need, and yet when people need the information the most, we can't turn that into profit, it kind of raises some serious questions about the viability long-term, doesn't it? 
Well, you know, we launched, as you know, Christian, a digital subscription model a little over a year ago. We did put it on pause when we were when we were bringing in the Times Picking Union Nolan.com into our organization. So I kind of say it's about a year old, even though it was it's a little bit more than a year old. We have seen a direct correlation. The we're up four times what we were averaging in a given week in digital only subscriptions. So we're sitting at about ten thousand digital only subscribers right now, which is way ahead of our projections. It's not enough. It's not good enough. You know, you know, most newsrooms, um, the they're trying to at least get the number of digital only subscribers to pay one time the payroll for the newsrooms. There's other, you know, other organizations are like, that's not aggressive enough. You need to have enough digital subscriber revenue to double what you're paying in the newsroom to help offset. Um, We also have seen a big increase in digital advertising, which was, you know, really the pleasant surprise out of it. Although print has been, you know, it has definitely been impacted on ROP, but our but our digital advertising has held its own. And then some months in the last few months have actually exceeded our, of course, last year, but also our budgeted numbers. So we're seeing more people are coming to us. So we're seeing, we are seeing a direct correlation with di- digital subscribers and digital revenue. So it gives us, again, it's, you know, how do you transform a traditional media organization? You better be running as hard as you can into digital this is forcing us because we have been a very traditional you know news organization because this southern corridor still believes in print and stephanie and i were talking about that in february it's it is you look anywhere else in the country and we really it's it's very rare to see the kind of uh, print subscriber numbers that we have on sunday we still have 165,000 print subscribers across three markets that's that's big. It's bigger than Nashville. It's bigger than Des Moines. It's bigger than Indy. So we, you know, we have those. We we still think print is an important part of our business model. But man, we are doubling down in digital. Judy, one great uh, business truism is that the first thing that gets cut is advertising. But on the other hand, it's usually the first thing to come back. Are you starting to see some signs of that? Yes, thank goodness. <laughs> About about um, probably almost a month ago, we started, you know, we really were trying to get advertisers to talk to us, get ready for when it comes back. Let's have let's have your strategies developed. Let's make sure we have all the tactics in place. And man, they weren't wanting to talk to us in early April. <laughs> They're like, that sounds nice. But I'm hoping, you know, I'm trying to figure out how I pay my staff or what my business even looks like. So about a month ago, we started getting the yes, we really need to get going. And so, um, you know, out of the gate, print revenue was down 48 to you know 50 percent. And now looking in June, we'll be down maybe about 25 percent. So you can see the big and really national advertisers are the RFPs are finally coming in. So for July, August, they're you know, are we banking on a big Q4? Yes, because we do feel like that pent up demand is there. And we we're, we have confidence in it because we're seeing the RP come from, you know, the largest national advertisers. So cautiously optimistic, but I do, I, re, I remain very, very concerned about the local retailers because they are there. It, it's going to be, it, it's more important now than ever that we come up with the solutions that are going to provide that ROI for them because I think they're in the fight of their life. And so I feel that that's something that's very important to us is to make sure we're taking care of our local advertisers. So, so Judy, I, I'm curious, how well did the donation strategy work? I mean, you, you're kind of going to the public and saying, this is something that we need, right? This is a public service. It's tied to a specific editorial product. I mean, did it plug the gap when you're talking about 
a million dollars in two days of lost advertising revenue? It, well, not for the but it certainly plugged ours. I mean, we just, we're sitting right now probably in the 70,000 that we've raised in the last two months, not shabby, right? Um, and, and continue every day to have, I mean, I, I go out on, we're using again through LMA and I can go out in their portal and, and see, and there's you know, days that literally we'll get you know, 30 donations of $25 and some days we'll get two or three $1,000 donations. And what I love, and you'll, you'll understand this Christian is you also, they're able to write you notes. And I mean, the inspiring things that they're saying about our journalists being on the front line and, you know, really they count on us and they're, they're supporting us. So it's a piece of the puzzle. We also applied to a number of grants. So Facebook and Google were both very good to us and, you know, to the tune of about $200,000. So, you know, that's a, like a pittance to them. That's, you know, that's, that's couch money, right? <laughs> but, but, but we'll take it. Do you see that continuing, Judy, once things go back to normal? I mean, I, I, will you all be looking at, at new revenue streams like this? Absolutely. I mean, it's definitely, when you and I talked, you remember we talked about events. And so we had a million dollars budgeted in event revenue. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that was an ouchie because really that's, we're not going to get anywhere near that. And so, you know, we've tried to reinvent ourselves a little bit. We've done virtual town halls with sponsors, but that's like tiny, you know, it really wasn't the big dollars that we really, in terms of diversification, we're going to be able to achieve in that manner. So yes, we continue. And, and I think, you know, we have a beautiful printing press here in Baton Rouge. And so we're aggressively going after more commercial printing so we can fill up ours. So we're looking at every opportunity for revenue infusion. And I think we're really positioned to do very well this year. I really feel like this dip will come out of it. I'm very confident. Judy Trezotis is publisher of The Advocate. Judy, thank you so much for joining us today on Out to Lunch, Louisiana. You're welcome. You're listening to Out to Lunch, Louisiana with Stephanie Regal in Baton Rouge, Christian Mater in Lafayette, and I'm Peter Raschuti in New Orleans. There's no two ways about it. This is a tough time to be in business. There is help available to get through this rough patch in the form of business loans, uh, even grants, uh, some are through federal agencies, some are through state agencies, and there's money available from city governments in New Orleans and Baton Rouge and Lafayette. Getting a hold of this money is not easy. Uh, typically, businesses benefit from being a member of a business alliance to help them navigate the maze of regulation and, and bureaucracy, but some businesses are too small to join alliances like the Chamber of Commerce. For those small owner-operated businesses, getting access to financial expertise is very, very challenging. Uh, you might be a great hairdresser, house painter, or plumber, but that doesn't mean you have great or even any business skills. Now imagine having the added problem of not being able to speak English. And that's the position many Latinx self-employed people find themselves today in Louisiana. And that's why there's an organization called El Centro, El Centro provides business assistance for Latinx entrepreneurs. The executive director of El Centro is Lindsay Navarro. Lindsay, welcome out to lunch. Hi, thank you, Peter. It's such a pleasure to be here and truly an honor. It's hard for me to not fangirl <laughs> <laughs> in this moment. I, I love this show and the opportunity to share. I think what our organization is doing is it means a lot to me. And, and tell me what the footprint looks like. Uh, uh, are you? Uh, in uh, parts of Louisiana, all of Louisiana? 
Yeah, so we're based out of the greater New Orleans area. Um, to be honest, we've got a partnership with the Mexican consulate. And so I've traveled as far as Lafayette, um, as far as Lake Charles, um, up to Baton Rouge as well. And we even have customers uh, who call us all the way out from Shreveport. So uh, we're small but mighty, and the reaches is quite broad across the state just because the need is so great um, for this resource uh, within the community. Lindsay, what is the, the number one question you're getting from these entrepreneurs during this time? I think a lot of them are looking for capital. I think a lot of them are not sure how they're going to weather this storm. Um, what we face, a lot of folks, uh, what we're really seeing are the number of business owners who think they have employees but realize that they have independent contractors. And so when it comes to being eligible for some of this funding, they don't have the payroll um, to really meet the needs of the company. And um, so we've seen companies as small as, you know, one person shows and then folks who are, are working in construction who have 10 to 15 independent contractors. And so when they're applying for funding like the PPP, they don't quite meet the payroll requirements. Uh, and a lot of them had no idea this even existed. A lot of them felt that this wasn't meant for them. Um, they weren't sure if they had to go to the bank or if they had to go to the government. And I think within the Latinx community or the Hispanic community, we have a fear for government. Um, and the responsibility, I think, of, of even committing to a loan um, is, can be very daunting for some of these folks. And so when, uh, you know, one thing, the application, and the application wasn't actually translated to Spanish until two weeks ago. Uh, and so uh, while the government was touting this uh, opportunity, it really wasn't uh, language accessible for the community at large. And a lot of folks didn't feel that they were gonna meet the requirements, uh, meet the, the credit threshold either, and they didn't even know where to start. So um, it's, it's been interesting to have to educate the community and work with them. And so we work with uh, Latinx individuals hand in hand, um, individuals and entrepreneurs in accessing that capital, helping them complete those applications. At first it was the EIDL um, and helping them gain access to the portal. Uh, we created a YouTube video in Spanish uh, that actually taught people step-by-step -step how to fill out the application. Um, we even created a how-to guide. And then what was unfortunate was that a couple of weeks later, the portal was closed. And so um, I don't think people could rush to it fast enough. So now uh, we're trying to connect folks to the PPP. And a lot of the Latinx community, a lot are ICIN holders, which means that they're taxpayers, um, but they may not have authorized work permits, so they can't work as employees. So they then by default are qualified as independent contractors. And so a lot of them didn't see themselves as eligible for some of this funding. So I think um, educating them in that aspect in and of itself was you know, demystifying this uh, for folks to realize like, hey, I'm eligible and this money can actually help me, right? So, so Lindsay touched on a point that I think a lot of folks have raised about that specific program, namely the, the payroll protection program and sort of the gaps that, it, the wide gaps that it had for certain businesses that really fell through the cracks, right? So, you know, a concern that we've seen here in Lafayette is, okay, well, where do we send them? Yeah, maybe they can get an, yeah, an economic injury disaster loan, but maybe that's not quite as generous as it would be if I were an employer. I mean, have you found situations where people you know, really fell through the cracks to the points where we're seeing like lots of business closures. I mean, has it been that damaging or have you guys been able to really point them in a direction where you can keep them going with a proper bridge loan? Yeah, we haven't started to see the business closures, but I think we're getting to that point. Um, I think we could potentially see it if we if there aren't incentives for the landlord to, um, to help accommodate for some of the rents that some of these folks are incurring. So I think every situation is extremely different. 
Um, I mean, we've seen our media partners also have a difficult time making ends meet, um, not being eligible for the PPP um, because they had a ton of independent contractors as opposed to employees. And so, I mean, the it's um, we're not we're not quite there seeing the closures just yet, but um, I can't say it's inevitable. Um, I think it's going to happen, and I think it's going to be unfortunate. Um, but we try our best to connect folks. And so we're allies, um, or we're, we work very closely with the SBA and very closely with the SBDC. We're essentially that, that Spanish-speaking liaison for the SBDC. Um, and I think just, I think just kind of raising, I think preparing folks uh, for the capital is key. And I think what we're ha what's happening a lot of times is um, a lot of these business owners were bootstrapping. A lot of these business owners, it's their first time accessing capital and typically you access capital because you want to make a large investment and in this case they're just hoping to keep keep businesses afloat and so i think it's a very different situation so lindsay you you, you raise a point though that i wanted to jump on that because you know access to capital and and the challenges there and uh, is something we're hearing from a lot of minority business owners now as we're as we're addressing issues related to you know the george Floyd protests and and whatnot, um, and and that's what you hear from minority business owners all the time, irrespective of the pandemic, right? Is how do they access capital? So, I mean, even in the best of times, at you know, at a very practical sort of granular level, what what can y'all do at, at, at El Centro? What do you do to help these really little guys and gals get money? Yeah, so I would be remiss if I didn't take the opportunity to. Um, to highlight, my background is actually in microfinance, and I worked with LeFund, which is one of the largest micro lenders in the nation. Um, and so we're very familiar with alternative lenders. And when I say alternative lenders, most people think we're three-headed monsters and that they're payday lenders, right, or loan sharks. And what we're really trying to do, I think, um, across the nation is combat that um, to educate folks. I think a lot of times business owners think that the big banks are their only option and they don't really see the different the difference or the distinction between a large national bank, a regional bank, a community bank, or even a credit union. And so um, that's that knowledge that the business owner won't have um, just because they're great at running their businesses, but they don't have to know where to access capital, right? The, the goal is for them to connect like an organization to, to an organization like ours who can say, look, we'll help you navigate the system. It looks like you're asking the wrong person for money. Let me get you in front of the right person so that you can get the answer that you need. And um, I think uh, part of that is what we do, right? Helping them pull that package together, making sure that they're prepared to have that initial conversation so that they have all their cards placed on the table so that they can get the right answer. Lindsay, this is Peter. I just... Uh, I don't think people understand how big the Latinx business community is. Uh, what, what kind of numbers should we be throwing Yeah, out? so statewide, according to the census, the 2010 census, we've got over 15,000, um, or a little less than 15,000. I think the number was 14,900 something. Um, so a little less than 15,000. And these are folks that are registered businesses. So this doesn't account for the number of people who are sole proprietors, who aren't registered, who are um, for informal businesses. I mean, we have a very large informal economy. When you go to Central and South America, what you see is, I mean, even I have an aunt who sells um, ice cream from her from her house, right? And she doesn't necessarily have to go to the city, uh, to the municipality to register that business. And so a lot of folks do that, right? They they have that side hustle, like we say here in New Orleans. Um, and that's that's very real within this economy as well. So in some ways, Lindsay, you're undercounted 
Yes, uh, we're extremely undercounted. Uh, and I think a lot of it is a fear. I, I think a lot of it is a, um, a lack of familiarity with the importance of the process. Uh, right now, we're working closely with the Hispanic Chamber, with the media, uh, to really raise awareness about the importance of the census, in particular for our community. So uh, the last person I really talked to about um, our uh, the representation or lack of or underrepresentation or under undercounting of the community was actually with a member from Telemundo, and they said that in 2010, after the census happened uh, or after the census had concluded, they began asking individuals in the community if they had participated, and they found that seven out of ten um, Latinx individuals had said they hadn't participated in the census. So uh, and we've seen a large influx. Um, of Hispanics in the community, particularly in the greater New Orleans area. I think seven, six or seven of the parishes within the greater New Orleans area have actually doubled in um, within the Hispanic, uh, the Hispanic population has actually doubled within those um, those parishes. And so I think more now more than ever, this was a resource that was extremely needed um, that I saw, like I said, coming from a lender background, I, I, I hate to say I was tired of denying people and I realized if I can just put my knowledge to good use and prepare folks to have this conversation, then we can really get them the access uh, to capital that they need. And whether that is a business loan or even a mortgage, um, we've managed to identify those lenders who are willing to work um, within the community uh, to help make those exceptions so that these folks can build um, what we call in Spanish patrimonio or that equity. Lindsay Navarro is the executive director of El Centro. Lindsay, thank you so much for joining us on Out to Lunch Louisiana. Thank you, Peter. It was a pleasure. And thank you for joining us for this edition of Out to Lunch Louisiana. We edited these conversations to fit into the time slot here on your NPR station. You can hear longer versions of these conversations wherever you normally get your Out to Lunch podcast. If you're not an Out to Lunch podcast subscriber, search for Out to Lunch, Out to Lunch Baton Rouge, or Out to Lunch Acadiana on your podcast app. At some point, we hope to go back to hosting Out to Lunch around the lunch table. But for now, our Lafayette Out to Lunch restaurant, The French Press, is doing curbside takeout. And you can pick up their regular menu items or family dinner, and you can get delivery through Waiter or Grubhub. In New Orleans, Commander's Palace is closed, but you can have a range of ready-to-cook items shipped from Commander's Kitchen to yours anywhere nationwide. Information is at goldbelly.com. In Baton Rouge, Mansur's on the Boulevard is open. You can eat at the restaurant where they have 50% occupancy and outdoor dining or get pickup. Out to Lunch Louisiana is a production of INO Broadcasting. The producer of our show is Grant Morris. Our technical producer is Eric Merle. And photos from this show on our website and social media are taken by Jill LaFleur. I'm Peter Raschuti in New Orleans. I'm Stephanie Regal in Baton Rouge. And I'm Christian Mader in Lafayette. Thanks for joining us today. We'll see you back here next week for more Out to Lunch, Louisiana. Major support for Out to Lunch is provided by the law firm of Jones Walker, established in 1937 with over 375 attorneys in offices throughout the U.S., providing a comprehensive range of services to a local, national, and international client base. JonesWalker.com and by Hancock Whitney. Hancock Whitney is here for families, here for businesses, here for communities during this challenging time. Visit HancockWhitney.com slash COVID-19 for the latest. And by Shorten Associates, legal recruiters in Louisiana and Texas. Mitchell Foreman wrote and performs all the music on Out to Lunch. You can hear Mitchell's music anywhere great jazz is sold or streamed and at MitchellForeman.com. 